0: This is Andrew from FX Medicine. We thank you so much for your support over the last two years. We'd really love to remain clinically relevant to your practice. So if you know of an expert in some area, please let us know. You can contact us on fxmedicine.com.au, Facebook or Twitter. This Medicine and I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook. With me here in the studio today is Dr. Alessio Fasano, who for most of us needs no introduction whatsoever, being the discoverer of zonulin. We're going to be discussing here his talks that he's giving at the 2016 Bioceutical Symposium. And I'd like to warmly welcome, without any introduction, Dr. Alessio Fasano.
1: Thank you. Thank you for having me.
0: Alessio, can you give me a little bit about your background uh, from medicine and how you got into gastroenterology?
1: Sure. Um, Well, I was born and raised in Italy, and I went to medical school at University of Naples. That's, you know, in the south. And um, honestly, um, the idea to go to medical school, you know, resigned with me when I was toward the end of um, my high school. And it was pretty obvious that that was, you know, what I want to do, with a clear understanding and and strength uh, that I want to do research. Mm. Uh, the reason why, because I grew up in a family, and um, mainly with my grandfather, that was a physicist. He was actually in Enrico Fermi's, you know, lab. Yeah. And you know, he always tickled that level of curiosity and exploration in my mind. And uh, um, you know, the human body it really fascinated me. Um, Why gastroenterology, you know, that's another interesting question. You know, again, with these premises that I went to medical school with the idea to do research, um, people ask me always, why not cancer? Why not HIV? Um, You know, why not neurosurgery that are much more glamorous than dealing with diarrheal diseases? That was my major interest, actually. And the answer is, well, you know, I was mesmerized when I started to go to medical school in learning that the major killer, even nowadays, remains diarrheal diseases. You know, we, leave, we lose many more lives by diarrheal diseases than any other disease that affect humankind. You know, by the end of this year, 5 million people, mainly kids, will die of diarrheal diseases, consequences. So, um, talking about to be impactful, Uh, In terms of what you do in terms of research, I truly believe that, you know, gastroenterology and particularly targeting diarrheal diseases was, you know, the way to go.
0: Indeed, it was your interest in looking for a cure for one of these diarrheal diseases that's led you to becoming famous for something completely different. Totally. Can you take us through that experience of serendipity?
1: Yeah. Well... Uh, that was indeed an experience of serendipity when I was in training at the medical school I spent my first three years totally focused on learning the physiology of the intestine and uh, you know silly me I was under the impression to know that more and being interested in diarrheal diseases. I you know um, Asked my mentor at that time, you know, I really I got this down to the cue in terms of the physiology of the gut. Now I need to really look at the flip of the coin. I want to learn more about how bacteria communicate with us and how they induce diarrhea. And um, I need to go somewhere that they understand how to study this kind of topic. And he suggests to me, and said, look, uh, probably the best place in the world is in Baltimore. It's a place that's called uh, Center for Vaccine Development. They do enteric vaccines. Mm-hmm. Um, you go there, um, you know, for two three months, so you learn a little bit of the techniques, and uh, then you come back and uh, you continue to explore this uh, situation. And then uh, so that I did. Um, the, the only caveat there was that you know that was the beginning of a revolutionary approach to molecular biology of microorganisms. So it was the time in which. F- you know, people that start to be capable to manipulate the genome of microorganisms. Right. So, what was supposed to be a two-month journey end up to be a three-year stay at yeah. the beginning. And during these three years, they said, look, um, you know, you take two birds with one stone to learn the techniques, and at the same time, helping us to develop a vaccine against cholera. At that time, you know, the uh, uh, exception was that, you know, cholera has a single weapon, extremely powerful, that is called to- cholera toxin. And the smell of it, like, you know, uh, three, four, you know, uh, seeds, mm-hmm. you know, uh, sides of, uh, you know, uh, this cholera toxin mm-hmm. can give you a very purging severe yeah, diarrhea yeah. in a matter of 40 liters and That uh, stunned
0: me. Oh, yeah,
1: that. and that's the reason why is there is such high mortality yeah. Imagine a kid that is, you know, five ten kilos and you have that purging diarrhea 80% of the body weight is gone in a matter of few hours yeah. and you're done
0: and indeed you can keep them alive as long as you can rehydrate them absolutely. as fast. absolutely
1: absolutely, but you know again uh, the, the particularly where this uh, epidemics happen you may not have the time mm. to go to a facility mm, they right. rehydrate you mm. and you're done because you know there is no such a chance you know giving this stuff back by mouth it's always uh, it's not always possible because you know they have you know vomiting and so on and so forth so you need to really put this on in a line mm. and that's something that you need a, a medical facility to do that anyhow so um, uh, they uh, put me on this task. I start to, you know, work on what was really fascinating uh, approach in genetically manipulating, you know, this microorganism. And the idea was, you know, to develop a live attenuated vaccine. Live because you want this still active so it can induce the max immune response from those. But at the same time, you want to take the weapon away so mm-hmm. that you don't get sick. Mm-hmm. And I spent a you know, almost a year and a half to develop this vaccine. So I put a lot of effort in that. And all the tests that we did before, you know, to go uh, for a clinical trial seems to suggest that the vaccine was really ready for prime time. Primetime mean that we have to give to volunteers, yeah. and our volunteers were students. So, <laughs>
0: beautiful yeah. Uh, yeah.
1: medical students that for $350, that was a huge amount of money in the mid-80s, uh, when all this was happening in early, late 80s, uh, they got you know uh, three possibilities. Uh, one, they got a placebo, so nothing, so they got the money for nothing. The second you know, got this vaccine that I swear to them that was going to work, and so again, for nothing. And the third possibility, they can got the real deal, got very sick, but we promised them to, that we'd take care of them, so they would not die of it, so of course. And the caveat is that these folks had to be locked in for a week, because of course, if they shed this microorganism around, that could be you know, not, not a good thing. Anyhow, long story short. We got plenty of students that uh, said, two out of three, I'll go for it. And, um, you know, the results were definitely not what we were hoping. <laughs> so the placebo, of course, they got no sick. The ones that they got the cholera, they got really sick. But again, we took care of them. But unfortunately, uh, you know, the ones that got the vaccine got residual amount of, of, of diarrhea, not not the 40 liters, but six, seven liters of diarrhea that made this vaccine totally useless.
0: It's till, still inappropriate. Oh, no, yeah.
1: you can't use the yeah. vaccine like this. So, bottom line, now we're talking about two years of science and hard work that literally flushed in the toilets. I mean, you know, that was pretty much gone. So, these are the kind of times in which you, know, you just you have to decide where you're going to go from there. And you know, uh, one possibility is that, okay, failure, forget it, you just move on. Uh, the other was the approach that I took, got drunk for three days, so I didn't go to the lab. And just, I was completely <laughs> immersed and just got you know, stoned. Mm-hmm. And when I came out of it again, I said, well, you know, what happened here? What gave this residual diarrhea? And that led to the discovery of this other toxin that Vibrio makes that acts in a very peculiar way, at least at that time was something never heard, rather than to open this, you know, you know, gates for water to be purged into the guts and therefore giving diarrhea, this other toxin was opening the space in between cells. And that was the beginning of an understanding that the permeability of the gut was, you know, something dynamic. We didn't know that you know, too well at that time. And the next, you know, 10 years were spent to understand the mechanism, how this toxin was doing this. And in studying this mechanism, we realized that there was a machinery in place that was extremely complex. So complex that I wonder why we have this machine just to be the target of a toxin that made my professional life hell, (laughs) gotta be something else. And because I have a great level of respect, of microorganisms, I've, I've, I've recent, you know, color probably studied our physiology and develop, engineer something that mimics a molecule that uh, we have mm. that does this for living. Mm. And that led to the journey to discover this uh, protein uh, that turns transmits zonulin and, you know, the end of the 90s and two thousand, and we published the first time discovered zonulin.
0: So tell me about the wording of zonulin. And and indeed the evolution of this gene in humans, because it's interesting how it's not in fish and, and lower mammals.
1: So animal. Uh, you know uh, the way that we went after this protein was, we know that it's we know that it has a mechanism similar to this toxin, and uh, you know we have as tools at the time you know some antibodies, so not always anti um, you know a molecule that can look if there is this zoning present or not. Um, and we call zonulin because affect tie junction that in Latin is zona occludens, and therefore we call zoning as the key that opened this zona occludens door. Huh. Um, So, and for the following 10 years, desperately, we see this protein, we can't see it, but we can't put our hands on it. In other words, uh, every single time they're trying to, you know, characterize what kind of molecule it was, it was a disaster until finally we pinpoint that this turns to be the precursor of a very, very ancient protein that is called aptoglobin. Aptoglobin uh, comes in two flavors, or two isoforms, uh, if you wish, one very ancient um, <clears throat> you know, um, f- uh, you know uh, f- form that is called aptoglobin one. This came out, evolution is speaking 450 million years ago. So soon after the fish in the rest of the animal kingdom, they split. And it's still around. and that speaks volumes because if evolution is speaking so conserved, over time, and among so many animals, that means that the function it's is extremely function. important. Yeah. Yeah. And indeed, this uh, uh, aptoglobin one, um, when it's mature, in its mature forms, is a scavenger of hemoglobin. And we know that if you have too much hemoglobin around, for example, after hemolysis, rupture of red cells, this can be extremely dangerous to tissue, will cause what we call uh, you know oxidative stress and death of tissue. So this molecule is pretty much a garbage keeper that as soon as there's too much hemoglobin will bind and subtract that from circulation so mm. that you don't have a tissue damage. Um, interestingly enough, um, you know, it would take another 40, uh, 400 million years plus to have the second causing of this molecule that is called aptoglobin two uh, that came on board roughly you know, uh, 2.8 million years ago, so um, uh, 500,000 uh, years after that, we split from our cousin chimpanzees. Right. So, only human beings, they have this aptoglobin two. happened, we know uh, for sure, in in the Indian region um, for a mutation that was a spontaneous mutation of part of this molecule. Um, what was not clear is one. What is the function of this molecule? Because compared to optoglobin one, this other one is not really good, mm. efficient to do the scavenging of hemoglobin. And uh, two, why once this mutation happened, not only remain, but spread to the point in which you know a large number of people, roughly <clears throat> 80% of the population, they have it. Yeah. Um, and again, um, that was not clear. What we end up to discover again by an act of serendipity is that zonulin is nothing else than the precursor of aptoglobin two. So in other words, you know, this molecule that should not have any function. Mm. The mature form of aptoglobin two turns to be zonulin. And therefore, that's the reason why only human beings seem to have, you know, zonin and no other animal.
0: Right. So a bit of this is a little bit of archaeology, I guess, but but is there any thought? Is there any way to test? I don't think there is about the possibility of having haptoglobin two in other um, humanoids.
1: Yeah, I mean uh, we know for sure that you know because <coughs> zonulin has a, a key function regulated, you know, the permeability of the intestine, mm. and we know that this function is extremely important for communicating with the external world, uh, that for sure, you know, zolon is one of the many molecules that probably exist that they do the same function. Um, in general, the rule of biologists, when you have an important function, you have redundancy. So um, we know already, for example, that in many other mammals, particular rodents, we have identified a zonulin-like molecule that, by the way, comes from the same ancestor in terms of you know molecular structure, yes. <clears throat> and does exactly the same job. So, but zonulin is a peculiar human being. That's That's as much as we understand.
0: One thing that interests me is why humans are so allergic to grasses. This evolutionary thing that doesn't appear to to affect so many other animals, but in humans it causes, well, you know, for instance, in celiac disease, it's it's obviously that sort of an autoimmune allergic type reaction, but even right down to inhaled allergens. Mm. Why are grasses such an issue?
1: Well, <clears throat> you know, this partially comes from, once again, evolution biology. biology. Mm. Um, as a species, we evolved uh, for, you know, our 2.5 million years of story uh, by eating pretty much fresh fruits, fresh vegetables, tubers, nuts, lean meat, um, fish. Um, you know, that's pretty much has been, you know, for all this time, the uh, backbone of what we've been eating. Um, And this was because, you know, of course, our history has been mainly of, uh, you know, hunter's gutters. So, you move around with the seasonality of, uh, you know, the crops and uh, with uh, the migration of animals. Um, And, you know, the amount of grass that we used to eat was extremely limited. Right. Um, then, 10,000 10, years ago, a major revolution happened, and we changed dramatically our lifestyle from nomadic chasing food to settlers. And with that, the agriculture came and And the reason why we were able to settle, because we were able to domesticate crops. And in doing that, you know, we start to play with it. And so... Um, I don't know if we accelerate what we left in a natural process, or we manipulate the environment to make grasses that were not supposed to be among the other stuff. We made, you know, grass-like, you know, uh, grains.
0: So, so we, is it a case that we just might have outpaced evolution? Because I, I thought I read a read a paper where there was a call it an ancient wheat, not an ancient grain, but mm-hmm. the the sort of original wheat, didn't seem to cause that sort of allergy.
1: Yeah. Or uh, allergic response. That's right. So uh, again, uh, let, let's say that wheat did not exist mm. to start with. Yeah. When the, um, you know, the first plant was domesticated um, and therefore was made use of, it was, so the ancient wheat, it was very different to the one that we eat now. Mm. Um, the plant was much higher. The seed part was only 5% of the plant. Um, the heal was minimal, mm. so there was only one harvest a year. Mm. Um, and the load of what seems to be the toxic element of it, at least for us, i.e. gluten, was relatively low, was like only 4%. Um, over the centuries, you know, farmers have been aimed at you know, improving the heal of wheat. And they did this by mixing and matching different cultivars. And so, uh, you know, by doing that, you know, they were able to make, you know, a new generation of wheat that was more efficient in terms of seeds. So the plant now has 10% or 15% was the seed parts. And uh, that also increased the load of gluten from 4 to 8%, doubling also the genetic material of the plant. And finally, roughly three or 400 years ago, uh, there was the last reiteration, the wheat that we eat right now, that had yet even more of a load of gluten. Now we're going 12%. Um, and, uh, you know, again, and now the plant is much shorter. Yeah. One-third of the plant is the seed, and you can harvest twice a year. Um, so, the, 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 the pressure to, quote-unquote, modeling these grasses was purely, you know, uh, an a efficiency to get uh, you know, stuff out of it. Mm. That's what it was. Yeah. But with that came also the fact that inadvertently we loaded this plant with this you know, gluten that in some people that can be problematic.
0: So hypothesizing here, um, would it be a magical cure to have non-gluten containing wheat?
1: Yeah, but that will lose completely the organoleptic characteristic of the plant. The reason why this is so, you know, widely used is that wheat, because of gluten, has this elasticity that nothing else, you know, can, can be, you know, uh, materialized with. For example, you know, the dough that you make when you use the flour from wheat and yeast and, and water, it's so elastic. So you can do the bread, you can do the pasta, the pizza, and so on and so forth. But if you try to do this with rice, doesn't do it because gluten is a glue Mm. and keeps stuff together. But also it's the one that gives to elasticity. So if you do a wheat without gluten, then it's not wheat anymore and does not have those properties that make this plant so unique.
0: I wonder if part of this issue might be that we've turned this... Grain that we used to have such sparse intake of and we've turned it into such a massive part of our diet Is that part of the issue? Oh, um, yeah.
1: Yeah, I, I think that's you know it, There is part of the issue, but I believe at play right now Particularly if we want to understand the epidemics of this gluten-related disorder is also what we have done once again to modify what you know mother nature decide not to you know um, you know materialize in terms of evolution so uh, you know, the consumption of, of grains containing gluten has been, you know, skyrocketing for a long time. But paradoxically, in the 100, 150 years of anything, it, they came down. But what we do with these grains now is very different. So our parents, you know, if they had to eat a lot of, a lot of bread at that time, so I'm talking about 20, 30 years ago, not that much. Including ourselves when we're growing up. It was a, an overnight process. So you have, you know, the flour, the water, and the yeast. Make the dough, and this dough will, you know, you know, grow overnight. Mm. Yeast has enzymes that can do stuff that our enzymes they can't. Because we didn't evolve to eat gluten-containing grains, we don't have a way to dismantle this protein in its single-block amino acids. But bacteria. And he they can. During these 16, 17 hours overnight, you know, the amount of degradation, these toxic elements that occurred was not trivial. And by the time that is done, most of these elements were detoxified. The load mm-hmm. that we were eating in mm-hmm. terms of toxic element coming from gluten was pretty low. Now this process takes two hours. We find a way to accelerate the process. So, okay. Who makes bread that does not have to go four o'clock in the morning yeah. and make bread. No, you go there at six o'clock, by eight o'clock, the bread is ready. Meaning that now you give two hours of this enzyme to detoxify. So even if we eat less gluten, the load of this toxic element is higher. And this, you know, just you know, factual. And if you put on top of it, then we use pesticides on these plants. And we don't know what these <laughs> pesticides are doing to us. You you appreciate that again. Eating you know, wheat now can be much more harmful for these reasons and not because we eat more than you know, one or two or three generations ago
0: we'll get to the use of specific strategies a little bit later like probiotics but i'd like to ask you firstly about a much broader aspect that inhabits our gut indeed it's been said that you know we come along with them as a carrying bag rather than they that's come right. along in us and that's the microbiota of our that's body right. now i'm really interested in the immune programming of segmented filamentous bacteria sfbs with um, dan litman value ivanov I, Ivanov, forgive me. Yep. You know, are you mm-hmm. familiar yep. with the yep. work? Mm-hmm. And the other um, organisms that interest me again are not probiotics. Um, bac- bacterium prausnitzii, um, Akkermansia muciniphilia. So these aren't organisms that we can give in a pill, at least not mm-hmm. yet. How do how can we change our diet so that we can help these beneficial organisms?
1: You know, this is something I'm passionate for, and, and reason why, as I told you, my You know, reason why I got medical school because I really was intrigued by diarrheal diseases, meaning how microorganisms communicate with us Mm. for their own benefits, but also detrimental to us if this communication and cross, you know, um, uh, you know, interactions uh, goes one way rather than another way. So, you know, it's been something that's been studied forever. And at the beginning, my interest was on a single microorganism, cholera, for example, yes. and then start to move to the entire ecosystem um, in terms of you know, what is in your guts and how this you know, communicate with us and so on and so forth. And again, you know, my initial interest was diarrhea diseases, then uh, gut permeability with the discord and how this eventually affects antigen trafficking, and so stuff from the environment to come in that can really harm us if this, you know, trafficking is not tightly regulated. Um, and, and 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 again, this has been an evolving spectrum of scientific interest that taught me tremendous lessons in terms of you know the fact that we, by convention, talk about the human body outside the scope of this interaction with these microorganisms, we really don't see the big picture. Mm. But what changed completely and dramatically the field, including you know the way that I've been perceiving this interaction, is the revolutionary understanding that what I was doing uh, was looking at probably 5% of the inhabitants in the guts, mm. in other words, the ones that I can see. I can put on a petri dish and I can cultivate so I can see colonies. Yeah. And now, thanks to techniques that we developed uh, through the human genome projects and so on and so forth, we realized that that was the tip of the iceberg. Ninety-five percent of inhabitants were totally unknown to us, and you know that shifted my level of interest almost a decade ago from you know this ecosystem of visible you know microorganisms to the wealth of this you know microbiota, um, and you know, that opened a completely new paradigm of understanding. When we, you know, I remember video that day, Watched the announcement of a resolution of the Human Genome Project. I don't know if you remember, there was a lot of glamour about it. Uh, There was, you know, expectation that this, you know, announcement was going to be made. There was this rush between Craig Venter's private enterprise and the NIH and the international consortium on the other side. And then finally, Bill Clinton organized, you know, a press release in which both enterprises would talk at the same time. It was a total disappointment to learn that genetically we're totally, you know, it's a misery. Mm. Uh, We are, you know, so rudimental, Uh, only 23,000 genes and this, you know, genome project aimed at resolving the disease of humankind because, uh, you know, we resolve that, we have the entire textbook of uh, human genetics uh, on our disposition so now we can understand how we develop all these diseases and again say like, how does that happen how we can be so rudimental when you know the plant mm-hmm. uh, that makes you know gluten has under 50,000 genes so five times more genetically sophisticated than we are the worm that we're going sh- you know fishing 75,000 genes how we can be such a complex, Organism and yet so genetically rudimental. Mm. And, you know, that was the intuition at that time that this ecosystem that lives with us from birth to death got to have a much more substantial and meaningful role rather than just sitting there. If we coexist, if we cohabit with each other, they must be like we see with pathogens like cholera. Cross communication all the time. So the question was what kind of language they're using and what they're talking about. And over time, you know, we learned that, you know, the major lesson that we learn from microorganisms is to really, you know, teach our immune system how to defend us, when to deploy you know, uh, weapons uh, that leads to the collateral damage that we call inflammation. And how we can control that so that it can be beneficial, protecting us versus when it goes out of control and will harm us. Now, again, I, you know, sometimes, you know, uh, you probably appreciate this in chat, that history and evolution biology really t- teach us a lot. And, you know, when we talk about the immune system and we talk inflammation, now we know that any disease of humankind has an inflammatory component, no matter if you talk an infection, an autoimmune disease, a food allergy, a cancer, neurodegenerative diseases, heart diseases, there is always an inflammatory component. So the immune system is always involved. But the function immune system, the way that was quote-unquote engineered by evolution was to fight only one enemy Microorganisms. Our ancestors, again, 2.5 million years ago, would die either because a predator will eat them or because infection will kill them. It's only recently that the immune system has to fight all these other enemies. There were no pollutants. There were no chemicals or radiations or you know uh, stuff that were exposed all the time. Definitely, there were no cancer. At that time, we didn't live long enough uh, that the immune system has to fight. Now, there's this wealth of enemies that needs to fight. And you wonder how we really make this decision processing if and when to unleash these you know, weapons. And who's teaching us to do that? Well, guess what? The trainer to decide if and when to unleash these weapons is the same target that the immune system was built for, microorganisms. Yes. So, the first thousand days of life are instrumental to teach the immune system how to defend us or to be detrimental for us. And the teacher is the microbiota. If we have an ecosystem in our body, particularly in our intestine, that is in balance, that is you know, in a friendly you know, relationship with us. So you're born by vaginal delivery, you're not taking antibiotics, there are not too many infections, you're fed, you know, real food and so on and so forth, breastfeeding first and then real food. The microbiota is good in balance, talk intelligibly with us, and will teach the immune system to unleash inflammation only when we are really, really under danger. So bar is very, very high. Yep. So that is what we call state of energy or tolerance or health. Mm. Conversely, if we do not have a balanced microbiota, this will become extremely belligerent and would teach our immune system to unleash inflammation even when it's not needed. So the bar is set so low that for minimal reasons, even if it's not needed, we unleash inflammation. And on a specific genetic background, that inflammation can translate in disease, not necessarily in the first thousand days of life, Actually, this disease can materialize much later in life. Once you set this bar down there, you can't do anything about it. So all this preamble to say, if indeed having the genes for Alzheimer, prostate cancer, breast cancer, serious disease, MS, doesn't mean that it's necessary the destiny to get to the final yeah, destination. Yeah, so because that's that. you need to have those. Yeah. It's the way that these genes are modified over time, what we call epigenetics, that will put you over the edge and eventually translate a potential to develop disease to actuality. And this transition is all driven by the microbiota. So when you talk about specific, you know, microorganism component of the microbiota are you know the ones that we've seen the literature popping up linked to specific conditions. However, you know, we need to appreciate that we are at the, at the at the dawn of a revolution, but we are not yet at the level that we can make this information useful for clinical applicability as we will in the prox- in the near future. And the reason why, first of all, when you talk about microbiota, you talk about a very complex, you know, ecosystem. And there is a hierarchy going from the domain all the way to the species. Right now, the technology that we have give us the capability to look at, you know, at the phylum level, the firmicutes, the bacteroidetes, meaning that we have a major, you know, big picture kind of vision. Um, it, it's, it's you know like to go from the universe to the Milky Way to the solar system yeah. and then eventually to Earth and then to Oceania and then eventually to Sydney and then eventually to specific neighbor. Right now we are up at the solar system, yeah. and if we want to make use of this information for intervention to modify the uh, microbiota, we need to get all the way down to the neighbor, i.e., the species level and we're not there yet.
0: There's been some forays into that using things like lactobacillus rhamnosus, I think plantarum as well, and was it KCI? KCI. Um, can you tell me about those forays? What's their relevance and yeah. their import?
1: Well, Once again, uh, this uh, probiotics um, like fecal transplantation is a kind of short in the dark. We know there are good bacteria, so uh, what we call probiotics. Mm. So they are not belligerent, mm. but we don't know if indeed you know, for everybody that has a specific condition, let's say food intolerance or, you know, inflammatory bowel diseases, the LGG is the remedy that will fix the problem. And the reason why, because again, your ecosystem and the gut, i.e. your microbiome, is very different than mine. And if I take mine and give it to you, this can be bad news because they don't talk with your genes the way they talk I'll to I'll start mine. speaking
0: with my hands more. That's
1: right, <laughs> that's right. I've got to use that. <laughs> um, but you know, again, by the same token, when they say, okay, if you are off balance, everybody needs to take LGG. That's a stretch. Um, so the future, the way that I see the future is that if I will have the capability to do on a clinical routine, what I now have the capability to do in the lab, not only to study who's there—that is the microbiota—but also understand what kind of language they can, t- they talk. Mm-hmm. So, what kind of genes they have, and most importantly, what are talking about? So, which of these genes now translate, and so they can communicate with me. Then I can really intelligibly, you know, decide what kind of intervention. Say, you know, I don't want you to talk about this stuff because if you do talk about this kind of, you know, topic, you're gonna to touch my genes that make me over the edge and make me to go from the potential to the actuality of the disease. Then I can intervene with the lactobacillus, bifidobacterium, whatever it is. And, and, and again, I'm afraid that if we start promiscuously using these microorganisms that Are totally beneficial to us. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, without customizing their use, we may end up to do the same mistake that we did with penicillin when was discovered. When we thought, you know, this is the remedy that can fix all infections, that we know now too well that one, that's not true, and two, that we've used them too too often. You know, microorganisms will come after to us uh, by developing resistance. So.
0: So we get back to then therapies, um, and what other than microbiota can we use? Fibers? Diets?
1: Personally, I believe that these epidemics of many chronic inflammatory diseases that we're witnessing, uh, particularly in the Western world, is not to the fact that you are, we are too clean for our own goods. So the hygiene hypothesis now starts really to crumble. I believe that we're changing the environment too fast to be able to adapt. Right. And if we accept the concept that the microbiota can be affected by, you know, the way we're born, uh, the, if we've got antibiotics, and uh, if we got infections that are old, they can change the microbiota composition. Yeah. Um, you know, um, y- we have to accept that some stuff can be done. So, for sure, you know, for example, if... You have to have a C-section for medical necessity by all means, but if you have to program your, you know, vacations, probably is not a good idea. Hmm. We know that most of the infection, the first three years of life, are viral infections. So I would not use the antibiotics so liberally as we do right now. However, you know, you're born only once. You may have infections once in a while. You eat three four times a day mm. so by far the most influential factor that dictates the microbiotic composition is nutrition so most definitely you know while probiotics will be the future I think that right now the best thing that we can do is really to act on the composition of our microbiome by having a good healthy balanced diet
0: and even that comes with controversy, because you've got things like the Mediterranean diet, which again has been bastardized by having too much wheat. <laughs> the traditional Italian diet, I'm gonna guess when you were a kid, how much wheat, did it, or how pasta? How but much see, pasta? there
1: is a misconception in, in that sense, yeah. because the, the, the again, my, my very humble opinion, and, and you know, that make really common sense to me, is that if we evolved by eating, you know, fresh fruits, fresh vegetables, Tubers, nuts, lean meat and fish. fish. The more we depart from that diet, the more we'll be in trouble. The real Mediterranean diet, contrary to what is our reputation, is not overloaded with grains. Not at all. Mm. It's a balance of all this. And, you know, we have olive oil, fruit and vegetable, is the the, the key core of what we eat. Um, We eat meat once a week, uh, and it's typically lean meat. Um, fish at the wazoo, because we're surrounded by water. Yeah. Uh, so again, uh, and and even the pasta or the pizza is something that we don't use that much. Definitely, we don't drink beer like you know the Germans because for us oh, it's totally unsophisticated. Or oh, the Australians. That's <laughs> <works. for> us <laughs> because for us, you know, drinking beer sounds sophisticated. We mm-hmm. drink wine. So, but. What I'm coming from here, what I'm saying is, no matter where you are from, no matter what kind of you know, traditions you are exposed to, moderation and balance is the common sense yeah. here. And again, you know, uh, should we go to the extreme to eliminate grains to everybody? Probably not, yeah. because it would not be cost effective nor, I believe, would we'll be feasible. Should we eliminate the grains to the ones that have gluten-related disorders? Absolutely because you have a return on investment. Should we say people, you cannot eat fat from animals anymore? Of course not. This is not a logical way, but if you minimize the use of these animals, that's the way to go.
0: Small intestinal bacterial overgrowth seems to be a growing interest amongst natural health practitioners. What can you tell us about the relevance of bacterial overgrowth generally and treatment for this?
1: So, you know, um, when we talk about a a problem with the microbiota, it can be a problem with this balance, what we call dysbiosis, or inappropriate distribution of the microbiota throughout the GI tract. We don't want small intestinal overgrowth of bacteria, because otherwise, they steal food from us. So mother nature, you know, create a condition in which, you know, the microorganisms are welcome to stay in a symbiotic relationship with us. Way down in the intestine, the colon, where all the nutrients have been absorbed, so they can use stuff that we can't. In exchange of this hospitality, they give us something back. But SIBO, it's something that's bad news. And again, um, you know, uh, not only they still mark you know, nutrients. That will be evolution speaking a disaster when you know food was scarce and you don't survive. But also because is the strongest stimulus to release zoning to increase gut permeability. Now, endotoxin, they come through, and you know this process has been associated to a lot of chronic inflammatory diseases. The best study probably is the metabolic imbalance due to the passages endotoxin in the circulation and then the liver, and uh, the development of type two diabetes, for example. So, definitely, these are bad news. Um, right now, the remedy that we have is antibiotic treatment uh, with the caveat that now you fix one problem, SIBO, and then you may create another problem, dysbiosis, mm. in the colon. Mm. Um, the, the, the future and the challenge is you know, to prevent SIBO to occur and to find new remedies eventually to handle it. Um, and, and again, um, it's interesting that you know even now, modern medicine accept the small bacterial growth as an issue that you know, can definitely bring you to have problems. So um, I, I think that the future lies on the capability to really now impinge on the microbiome, either because of balance, because it's distributed you know, inappropriately throughout the intestine. And once again, the key elements here is not to treat, is to prevent this stuff to happen. Uh, you know, Mother Nature put a lot of leaders defense against SIBO. The, the, the saliva, the gastric juice is very offensive uh, for microorganisms and then eventually the pancreatic juice, the bile, the they cover you know this you know, um, you know cells. If microorganisms they go through all these you know layers, they land uh, on, on the intestinal yeah, wall, the wall yeah. and they do this like you know when you are in the middle of the river, the current is very strong and then you move on the banks, they will be able to attach and once you're there, you know they have a niche in which they don't compete with other microorganisms. They have plenty of food, so they love to be there. And what has been probably the most influential drivers of SIBO nowadays? Probably the promiscuous use of anti-acid remedies right. uh, like PPIs, because you know you don't have the gastric juice that is the pH so low that will kill most of them, and they may eventually flourish. So. Little things like to say, you know what, use PPIs when you definitely need to, and for the time then you need to, but not just promiscuously. Just that will do the trick.
0: I'm very sad that I can't ask you about 100 more questions and keep you here <laughs> for another six hours. But I have one last question just to try and get a handle on these modern-day diseases, and that is non-alcoholic fatty disease related to intestinal permeability. Can you take our listeners just briefly through the importance of maybe zonulin? Yeah. How it how it uh, governs that and the importance of this so, health condition. So
1: this is exactly what we are talking about. If you have a situation that you have inappropriate increase of gut permeability of very far per- first part of the intestine, and you have endotoxins either because of SIBA or because there is a you know a certain amount of load of microorganism there, you have this passage of these noxious elements in the bloodstream. The first stop of this you know. Elements will be the liver, and that will change the metabolic pathway, and you have non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. That translate again in the metabolic imbalance that leads you to type two about diabetes. So, the key elements there is how we can prevent this, how we can stop this, um, and it's sad because you know now. You know, fatty liver disease and obesities and an epidemics, particularly involving, you know, young kids, that is only partially due to quantity. For sure, we overfeeding these kids, but also quality. We know that there is a composition of microbiome that can really favor scavenging of nutrients, and therefore you eat the same amount of food, the same amount of calories, but somebody with a unbalanced microbiota may eventually gain much more weight than the ones that do not have that unbalanced microbiota.
0: So if I can, hopefully I'll wrap this up correctly. So for those who have celiac disease, it's it's avoidance of wheat, that's a, that's a no-brainer. But that's for right. those who don't have celiac disease, there may or may not be a reason to avoid wheat, depending on what they have. Fibers, diet must be the basement treatment and then we might look at adding in probiotics if they're appropriate, would, that, would you agree with that? So
1: bottom line is that now we know that you know, there are people that they have a medical necessity to be gluten-free. These are the celiacs, these are the weed allergy people, these are the people they have this new form of non-celiac gluten sensitivity, they will benefit to go gluten-free. For the rest of us that we don't have problem with that, the key elements that apply also to the people that have you know, this kind of problems is to have a balanced diet as close as possible to the diet that we evolve with. So Mediterranean diet is a way to go eventually. Mm-hmm. And if there is necessity in the future, when we see that despite our lifestyle, there is an imbalance in the microbiome, then customize the intervention with probiotics, prebiotics or symbiotics to bring everything back in a non-belligerent friendly interaction with this, you know, folks that live with us from well, you know, birth to, to death.
0: I've got to say, Dr. Alessio Fasano, you're a bit of a hero for me. I, I, like, I wasn't going to miss seeing you at the symposium for anything. Oh, um, you. You've been a bit of a hero for me since I first learned about zonulin from your paper in 2003. And I think I'd uh, implore anybody to read all of your works um, regarding to zonulin and, and gluten intolerance and, and those sort of diseases. So thank you so much for joining us on FX Medicine.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: This is FX Medicine and I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook. If you've enjoyed what you've heard today on FX Medicine, please engage with us and let us know what further topics you'd like us to cover. You can get in contact with us through our website fxmedicine.com.au or look for FX Medicine in your favourite social media platform. You can also rate and review us on iTunes and we'd really like to thank those who have already rated us. It's through your continued support that enables us to bring you current, complex and relevant topics to enhance your practice of natural medicine.